with uh, sharing my story. And then once I do that, we'll dig into the text this morning in Psalm 83, which is also ultimately the story of Israel. And the pain and the sorrow and the anger that they felt uh, when it's obviously we read today, as Caden did an awesome job, um, of the injustice and the odds stacked against them. And so this is what we're going to do. Um, I'll share my story. We'll look at Israel's story. And then I want us to ask the question, how does this impact my story? How does this impact our story? Uh, how does that change how we leave and how we handle anger? Um, anger is not a bad thing. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, that anger is not bad, but do not sin in our anger. And so we have to really come to the text today asking ourselves, uh, why, um, why do we have anger? Why would God give us that? And then how do we use that in a good way and not in a bad or sinful way? Uh, and as I share my story, you'll find that there are many instances throughout my life when I felt that I was treated unjustly, when I felt angry and I felt hurt or ostracized or put on the outside or treated differently or abandoned. And so my story begins in Elgin, Illinois. Uh, I just grew up right outside the city. My parents divorced when I was about five years old. And uh, I was just a menace of a kid. And so when I was in sixth grade, the principal called my mom in the, into an office and said, if your son doesn't shape up, he's going to a behavioral school. He's got one more shot. And so my mom took me to church and said, fix him. And it was that very first Sunday that uh, I actually listened to this message that Christ could forgive me and that he could uh, take away all this guilt and shame and make me into this man that I knew everybody wanted me to be, but I had no idea how to be. And so I, I accepted Christ and, and began that process of becoming uh, who Christ desired me and created me to be. And then when I got into junior high, uh, I really sensed a call in my life to be a pastor because the children's pastor took me under his wing and was like, Josh, I really think that you're called to be a pastor. And I remember not even really knowing what that meant, but being like, I want to be just like you. Sign me up. Um, no idea what I was signing up for. Now here I am. And so I, I, for five years, I, I served with him. And when I was in eighth grade particularly, I started a ministry in my middle school uh, that eventually grew to the high school that drew over 100 unchurched students. The school didn't like that we were there eventually and tried to sue us. Or we, we sued them um, to be able to stay uh, and continue to meet there. This only grew our ministry even more to this large Baptist church called me up and said, hey, we've got a whole west wing of our building vacant. We'd love for you to come have your meetings here. Um, it used to be a youth center. And so we started meeting there. And within a few months, their, their youth started attending. And so the church leadership came and said, we'd like to hire you as our youth director. And so at 17, I ac accepted that position. And then I graduated high school. And they said, hey, if you want to keep this job, you need to get some letters behind your name. So you should go to Moody Bible Institute. And so I started commuting into the city. And I would go to Moody. And I'd work at the church. And while at Moody, um, I began to learn how I was to deal with my sexuality. Uh, I had known I was gay since I was 12. Uh, and really wasn't sure how to handle that within my Christian framework. And so I experimented it quietly and was filled with guilt and shame and promised God I would never do it again, and then I would do it again. And then I would go through this whole process of begging him to change me, and none of these things seemed to work. I couldn't seem to separate myself from it, so I just kind of hid it. And so I got to college, and I met an ex-gay professor, and I was taught at Moody Bible Institute that the way you deal with your sexuality is by singleness and celibacy. And so I committed to that. And went back to the pastor of the church where I was a um, youth pastor at. And I said, listen, I want everyone to know I love Jesus so much and I'm so committed to the church that I'm going to be single and celibate the rest of my life. And the pastor said, I love you and that is great, but this is not the place for you to come out with that. And a few months later, I was let go. 
returned to the church where I grew up in the Assemblies of God. And my very first Sunday back, found out the pastor had resigned. And so I was asked to serve in the interim for three months. And then they came and said that they would like for me to stay on staff. Uh, and so I accepted that position with the understanding that I could share my sexuality with people one-on-one, -on -one, but I was not allowed to do so from the pulpit. And after a year, that spread wildly enough, and the, the higher-ups found out, and I was given an option to either go through reparative therapy or resign. And I did not believe the reparative therapy worked, and so I resigned, and I was angry. So angry, I had lost another church. Another people would not accept me, and I was trying to fall and step in to do what they told me to do, but even that wasn't good enough. Angry, feeling like I had been treated unjustly and set off to the margins and rejected, not no sure what to do. I spent the next two years of my uh, moody career getting my undergrad just saying, I'm not going to serve as a pastor until I graduate. And hope to God that when I graduate, I can find a church that will love me and accept me as a gay, single, celibate man. And so the day after graduation, I packed up a moving truck and I moved to Kentucky. <laughs> oh, and loved that church. Fell deeply in love with those. Loved those people. Just spent the last week there trying to connect and reconcile, which is some foreshadowing that comes in this story because I realized that after a couple weeks, they didn't really understand my sexuality. The elders came and said, Josh, you have to stop talking about this gay thing. It's in your past. We're becoming known as a church in town with the gay pastor. And I realized then that they realized that they believed that sexuality was something that I did, not something that I was. And that because I had been celibate for five years, well, then you're not gay anymore, right? Uh, no. You so misunderstood. But I stayed quiet for two years and buried that part of my life and tried not to talk about it or think about it, but that was not working. And so after a year there, I started studying gay-affirming theology. It was the only way for me to resolve the anger that I had towards God, the anger and self-hatred I had for myself, and the anger that I had for the people of the church. I thought, I've got to reconcile this or I'm going to lose my faith. And so I began to dig into the scriptures and I studied, and I eventually, after a year of deep study, realized that God created me this way and that was a beautiful thing. And so I resigned from my church in June of last year, and I lost about 90% of the people in my life when I did that. Lost, angry again, feeling rejected. I decided to move to Kalamazoo, Michigan. And for the last year, I've participated in ministry at a United Methodist Church there and worked at a high school. And during that process, I realized, you know, I think I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to learn some progressive theology. And uh, about a year ago, this month, I sat in a seat up there uh, and worshipped at Urban Village, Wicker Park. And I thought, wow, God, what a neat place. Um, how great would it be to... to, to preach at a church like this one day, uh, but they'd probably never hire me, I thought, <laughs> and uh, oh, I didn't cry for service, uh, and here I stand now, uh, God in his sovereignty leading me to this place that um, overwhelmed with joy, and so this is my story um, of, of, of <laughs> anger and justice and redemption, and the story still goes, right? And so today, we're going to look at the story of Israel. Um, and the, the odds were stacked against them in uh, Psalm chapter 83. Asaph sits and he opens this text with this prayer, uh, this cry for God to do something. Very similar to the prayer that I prayed for God to do something. Very similar to the prayer that we're praying in our country today. God, do something. God, show up. 
In the midst of all of this pain, in the midst of shootings and slaughters, in the midst of terrorism and crimes, in the midst of racism and radicalism, we ask, God, where are you? What are you doing? Don't be silent any longer. Show me what I can do to be Jesus and be an agent of reconciliation and justice. But as you read in the text, or as Caden read in the text this morning, uh, when he talked about his enemies, if you sensed Asaph was a little angry, <laughs> he, he wants his enemies just completely destroyed, demolished, I mean shamed, brought to their knees. I mean, he's pretty angry. And so this morning, I, 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 want us, I want to acknowledge he has the right to be angry. We have the right to be angry when we're hurt. And the very first thing we want to do when we're hurt is what? I want you to feel the same pain I felt. I want you to cry the tears I've cried. I want you to feel what I feel. And I want you to know what you did to me. I want a bullet for a bullet. I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is our first reaction. But I want to propose that that's a bitter anger, not a better anger. A better anger... It doesn't just long for revenge, it longs for justice. And justice and revenge are very different things. So what is a better anger, you ask? What is better anger? I believe it's to do these three things. Raise your hand if you've ever been angry before. Some of you are liars. <laughs> All right. So, and, and, and any good therapist would say, oh, you don't want to say you're angry. So instead you say, I'm disappointed, right? Uh, I, I don't, it's bad to be angry, so I'm just disappointed. Uh, no, no, you're, we've all experienced this anger before. And when we're angry, the question is, what do I do with this? If I bottle it all up, you told me that, didn't you, Phil? <laughs> if, you bottle, if you bottle it all up, it's never healthy, right? So what do I do with it? I believe we do these three things when we're angry, when we're hurt, when we're fear with, filled with fear instead of faith. We do these three things. We express our hurt. We extend mercy. We exercise justice. So what does that all mean even? We're going to unpack that today. Let's start looking at this prayer that is prayed by Asaph in Psalm 83. In Psalm 83, he begins in verse 1, and he just says simply what many of us are saying today. Oh God, do not be silent. Do not be deaf. Do not be quiet, God. In essence, God, where are you? What are you doing? God, do something. Do you see me? Speak up. Stop this. And then he does what a lot of us do, right? If God doesn't do anything, we're like, here are the reasons why you should do something, God. Ever done that? Here are the reasons why you need to show up like right now. And so he goes into this thing in verse 2. He says, don't you hear the uproar of your enemies? Don't you see your arrogant enemies are rising up? They devise crafty schemes against your people. They conspire against your precious ones. So in essence, he's like, we're your people. We're created in your image. We're your children down here. We're suffering. Just, just do something. How could you leave us in this place of potentially being genocided by our enemies who all rallied together against us? Look what he says in verse 4. Come, they say. Let us wipe out Israel as a nation. We will destroy the very memory of his existence. This is still happening in parts of the world today. In some ways, this is probably still happening in our country today. Just perhaps not used to the same labels. 
And so the second reason he says why God should show up is he's like, they want to commit genocide. If anything should beckon God to come down, it would be the destruction of a people group. And then the third reason he says is, yes, this was their unanimous decision in verse 5. They signed a treaty as allies against you. Look at they don't say against us. They say against you, God. Because to be against us is to be against you because we're created in your image. We're your children. We're your chosen special ones. And so he makes this reasons. He cries God to God for help. Then he names the enemy, just in case God forgot who the enemy was. right? Just in case God doesn't know who he's talking about, who's against them. He lists the enemy. I'm not even going to do it. I'm going to pull a Caden. And then he moves into verse 9 here. And he does something that I think we can take note of in a way that we can deal with some of our anger. He takes a stroll down memory lane and he begins to reflect on how God has been faithful in the past. On how God has always come through. How they're still standing and they're still alive and God has always delivered them. And so in verse 9 he talks about, God do you remember how you delivered Israel from the Midians in Numbers? God do it again! Then he says, do you remember how you delivered Israel from Caesarea and Jabin and Judges 4? God, do it again. And then he says, God, do you remember how you delivered Israel from Gideon? I mean, I'm sorry, use Gideon to deliver the Israel people from evil leaders in Judges 7. God, do it again. And then he closes with, God, you use Gideon to deliver people in Judges 8 from princes. And God, do it again. And so he's remembering, God, you've always been faithful. You've you've always been there throughout all of history. I'm still standing, so clearly you've been faithful. Do it again. And then he goes into this cry and this prayer for justice, which we see is he's, he's pretty angry. He's pretty ticked. And what I see in this prayer is I see the humanity of this man. I talked about a moment ago. He wants an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He wants them to pay. He wants them to be shamed. You know, if I'm honest, when I'm hurt, that's what I want. That's the first thing I want. And I have to make an intentional, very difficult decision to say, but what what does Christ want me to want? And what does Christ want for that person? Does he want revenge? Or does he want salvation and deliverance and justice? Does he want this situation to be reconciled? You know, it's okay to want justice, but revenge, like I said a moment ago, (laughs) revenge is not justice. Justice desires a redemptive end. Let me share with you this story of uh, how I was able to practically use what I told you a moment ago, the importance of expressing our anger. It's important that we do that. It's important that we we express our anger, but even as we express our anger, we must also um, extend mercy and exercise justice. So how do we do that? Well, let me just tell you a story of how I put this to work this week. Because as I was writing this, it was like, I've got to do some self-examination because I'm angry about some things. And it just kind of rose to the surface. On move-in day, which some of you were there to help me, so thank you so much for helping me move into Chicago. Lots of stairs. It's a painful place to move in at. And on that day, lots of people showed up, and I was so thankful, but there was one person that I really wish would have showed up that didn't. And that was my dad. Um, my dad and I have had a very strained relationship, and I'm not going to go into all the things he's done because it's in the past. It's over. But this was a recent thing, and I 
haven't asked my dad to participate in things in my life for, I would say, probably close to seven, maybe more years than that. Because if I'd asked my dad to, to show up or do anything, then he couldn't disappoint me. And so because of that, I thought, you know, that's, that hasn't been healthy, and my dad's coming a long way. He's, my dad is an is, uh, alcoholic, and I would say that well, he, <laughs> he's a good man, but when he drinks, he's a different man. And so I've been really trying to be more intentional in my relationship with my dad. So I call my dad every week, and I remind him that I love him, and I'm present, even though all these things have gone on, and we don't have a very normal father-son relationship. I do for him as I would like for people to do for me who have rejected me. And so I decided I was going to give my dad an opportunity to do something for me, and I asked him to do something for me the first time in years. That was to help me move in. And on move-in day, my dad did not show up because he was hungover. And it was on Father's Day, and he didn't answer my calls or my texts. And the next day, he was supposed to be reporting to 18 days in jail for his sixth DUI. And so I knew I wasn't going to get to talk to him for a while either. Well, this week, as I was writing this message, I thought, it's, he's out now, and it's time to call him. And in the past... I would, we would have just called, and I would have pretended like nothing ever happened, and we just picked up where we left off, and everything lived in eternal bliss, because this is just what happens, right? But this time I decided that I needed to practice what I was preaching in this message today, that I was angry, and that the barrier wasn't healthy. But instead I needed to do what I have encouraged all of us to do, and that was to express my hurt. And that was to extend mercy at the same time, and then exercise justice. And so I called my dad, and I said, how was your time in prison? And we talked about that. And then I said, hey, I just I need to say something to you. I really was counting on you. And I really put myself out there asking you to help me. And I didn't think that all these years later I would still be hurt since I'm older now. But it hurt just as much. And I was really disappointed and let down. And... He made some reasons, and, and I just said, Dad, you know, you don't have to give me reasons or excuses. And I said, I just want you to know this. I love you. You will always be my dad. I will always call. But I need you to know that this hurt deeply. And because of this, some boundaries are going to be drawn. And I may not be as quick to ask you next time. And I don't want you to be offended or hurt because of it. I want you to remember that it's because of this. And this is a boundary that's being drawn. And you can earn that back. And you can show me that you want to be there. But I want you to know that I may not be as trigger happy. And I don't really know where that conversation is going to lead. But I know that it was a healthier way to deal with our conflict and with my anger. And that even if it doesn't do anything for him, it did something for me. To choose a better way to deal with my anger than a bitter way. And I believe that when I extended some boundaries and said this is what it's going to be now because of this, that was doing justice. I believe that when I looked at my dad and I realized that I have wronged people, I have hurt people in my life too, just as he has hurt me, that was me extending the same mercy that I want. And that when I was hurt and I told him how I felt, that was me extending and expressing my hurt. Healthy way to deal with anger.
And so as we bring a close to this message, I really want us to, to think long and hard about where we're at in our journey and, and what things we're feeling angry about and how are we handling those things. Is it how Jesus would handle those things? Uh, it's okay to be angry. Turn Pentecostal for a moment. Turn the person next to you and say, it's okay to be angry. Good. Tell them a little louder now. <laughs> it's okay. But the question is, is, is how can we embody Jesus in that he says to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you? How can we embody Jesus that the man hanging on a cross that doesn't even look like a human because he's been beaten to a bloody pulp and they're rolling off dice to who's going to get his clothes, yet he hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so much hate and injustice that's been done in the world and to us personally, often it's done because they know not what they do. They, know no, they don't know the other side. Often because people aren't willing to listen, to hear, but just listen to respond. Often because no one's actually willing to practice this idea of, it, of expressing the hurt and extending the mercy and, and exercising the justice. Instead, it's just how can we get even told the first service, and this wasn't in the notes, so I'm just going to share it again. I went on a date, and, it, and, and I thought it went great, and then I got a text afterward and said, I don't want to see you again. Uh, maybe we could be friends, but that's about it, because you made some racial slurs. And I'm like, I made racial slurs? What? I did that? Undertones or something. And I thought... I've been working so hard to change my worldview and understand and think differently and communicate differently. Like, what did I do? So I asked, what did I do? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. You've you got to tell me. And, and it took me several days. And then finally, he came back with, here are two things that you said. And some minor undertones that I hadn't ever even perceived or picked up. And I realized, I'm not even going to explain why I said that. They just shouldn't have been said. And I'm sorry I said it, and thank you for saying something, because that's your role. If you had not said something, the tides would not have turned. I would not have known any different. But now I know. And now I have to do something with what I know. And, and forgive me for that. And he extended mercy. And I want us to, to realize that that's our role in justice. Our role in justice and bringing that to the earth is being willing to call people on their... It is Urban Village. I won't swear my first sermon yet. We'll save it. But to do it mercifully, realizing that there was a time when we didn't know all that we know either. And when we've been hurt, to extend that mercy and that justice.